You are now listening to the November 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. Hello everyone. Welcome to our program, The Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Last week, we learned about how God can be eternal. He is outside of time and has no beginning or end. It also means that God is the creator. No one created God, but he created all things. Have you ever admired something in nature? A sunset? A hummingbird? A clear starry night? Did you think of God as creator as you stood in awe and wonder? In Psalm 8, verse 3, David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Or in Psalm 147, verse 4, the author writes, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. God not only created the stars, he has given each one a name. He knows each name of each star that is up in the night sky. But in order to really understand our Creator God, let us explore the very first chapter and verse of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the rest of chapter 1 describes how God created everything. The scriptures are filled with descriptions of God and how he created all things, and not in just the first chapter of Genesis. God again describes how he created the heavens and the earth in Job chapters 38 and 39. God speaks of it again in Exodus chapter 31 verse 17, where he said to the Israelites, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Jesus confirms this when speaking to his disciples about the end times in Mark chapter 13, verses 19 and 20, in which he states, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Even Paul, as he preached to the new Gentile believers, made sure they knew and understood that it was God who created all things. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mercy which for ages have been hidden in God who created all things. God also created you and me. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That means you were created lovingly and specifically by God. You have purpose and meaning, and you are loved by God. In closing our program for today, I want to share the words of the first stanza of a poem by Carl Boberg that was later made into one of the greatest hymns of all time. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. May our souls sing out to our Savior God and proclaim how great he is. May our souls sing out to our Savior God and proclaim how great he is. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to our time together again next week. God bless you, and goodbye.
I scarce can take it in That on a cross My burdens gladly bearing He bled and died To take away my sin Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art And when Christ shall come Shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior. God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, how great Thou Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, the authors of the book, Learning How to Trust, talked about how our decisions reveal certain things about us. They also touched on a process of how to trust. And this week, we continue that conversation by discussing three things. Number one, the irony of a painful relationship. Number two, how we can't avoid pain, but we can't avoid joy. And number three, how our lives will rise to the level in which we place our trust. This conversation is taken from Alan, Polly, and Ed's book, It's titled, Learning How to Trust. And at the end of the podcast, I'll give you more information and the resources from Alan, Polly, 
and Ed. Well, today's show begins with a personal story and testimony to Almighty God of how Ed's divorce provided a new way to trust. In this uh, section in the book, Ed, you give the illustration of going through a divorce Mm -hmm. in your mid-20s and that that many people in that situation will medicate themselves with alcohol or drugs or unforgiveness and bitterness, but that you chose to medicate yourself with God's Word. Mm -hmm. Can, Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it was it was, it was almost like spooky. I don't want, <laughs> uh, but I think our audience, it, for for me, and this is not going to happen for everybody the same way. But for me and my walk, um, I just aimed back to God. I just knew that was the right place. And and Polly, I, it was amazing. I could sit down and where I'd never read like First Corinthians before mm-hmm. or Philippians before, I could read it in one reading. I'd have half of it memorized. Mm-hmm. To this day, I still wow. have that. I can, wow. I can log that. You know, I know right people. You know, I remember when I was in staff at a at a big church. You know, they said, Pastor kept saying, the guy who knows the word better and anybody, all you pastor, anybody in this church is that singles guy, that mm-hmm. single pastor guy. You know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't anything I did. That was a God deal. That was nice, and I appreciate that advantage. But for me. It was just walking in that, and everything was not just truth, but truth with light. It was like I was having an epiphany. It was a revelation through illumination, right. all right, which created transformation, which required a little perspiration. <laughs> but, the, but the point of it is, it was more than information. What I'm looking for for people in this book, I just, you know, there's a lot of truth in this book, but there's going to be certain points when you read this book that I promise you that God will give you, ah, that's it. That's what I needed. That's the aha moment. And that's what really transforms person. It'll mm-hmm. move you from information to transformation through revelation, which came from illumination. Seriously, I'm sorry to play with all those crazy words there. It's a little, <laughs> seems a little weird. But it's really the process. Yeah. And so I want to encourage uh, everybody here that, you know, as you're going through this thing, look for those little God intersections where it's Jacob's ladder, where it's truth mm-hmm. of light, right. where angels are ascending and descending. Right. Boom. But that's the thing. It is truth with light. We know that it takes the combination of both. You need yes, the word. Right. And that, Absolutely. because you were bathing yourself in the word, that's then right. you were allowing the light of God to shine on you Absolutely and give God. you how to apply this truth in your life, in your life, in your situation, so that it made sense to you, that you were bathing yourself in it, and you were spending time with him, and you were getting his take, his perspective on your situation. If if I could say it this way, it's both biblically correct and spiritually accurate. It's those two things, not just biblically correct, but spiritually accurate. Mm -hmm. When those two swords come together, that's that's that real moment. So I'm not trying to get mystical on you. Don't get me wrong here, people. Mm. But what I'm trying to say is when you have your listen, you know, silent and listen have the same letters, you know. And so just be listening to, not just to your own emotions and what others are saying. And sometimes God wants to speak to you. You, many of you people, and myself included back in the, and many times since then too, not just in that situation, but many See, when you're in a wilderness, there's one thing about a wilderness we need to learn. 
When God takes people into the wilderness, it's only for one reason. He wants to talk to them. Whether it's Israel, whether it's Paul in Arabia, whether it's Jesus in the, in the wilderness, there's only one reason God wants to take him with us, and that is he wants to talk with you. And that's really a precious time. Most people, they don't want to go in the wilderness. They would start binding it and loosing it mm. and everything like that. But it's the great thing about wilderness. It's a special time with God. And so if you're in that wilderness right now, don't worry. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's an amazing thing, too, Ed, to think for many of us, as you talk about the, the illumination of God's Word, those aha moments, how quickly those things will happen for me, and yet I want to move on to the next thing because i got to finish the chapter in the book. <laughs> right? Oh, just stop, I need, just I need stop to stop right there. Right. <laughs> I need to stop and just see what yeah, the Lord's good, saying good, right Dustin. there. Great. Well, and I think we can have, uh, you know, we wrote a little booklet on uh, how to beat burnout by taking a sabbatical. And I think you can either be forced into sabbatical or you can choose to get a sabbatical. And we can be forced into the wilderness or we can choose to spend some time with God and do preventative maintenance. And, you know, one of the things that I've promised myself this year is that I will take a day with the Lord once a month where I choose to just go and be quiet Mm -hmm. and stop asking questions and stop ministering to people and stop all this activity and put everything down and just go, speak to me, Lord. Uh, Here I am. Uh, I'm willing to listen. And again, when I was in that clinical depression when our son died, um, it was the first time in my life that I wasn't comfortable with silence alone with God because my My emotions were so jangled. My thoughts were so racing. And so I just want to put a context in terms of, as I see people in counseling, you know, some people get it immediately. Some people take months or years. Mm -hmm. And we can't determine that. It's God who determines. Now, if he's shining his light and you're putting your hands up and you're going, I don't want to see the light. But just because we're down in a basement, it doesn't mean it's not a beautiful sunny day. Just because we feel and see darkness doesn't mean God isn't showing his light. We just need to maybe take a few steps up the stairs and open the door and go, oh, it is a sunny day here. And so there's the forced wilderness experience. I mean, it said Jesus was led into the wilderness and was tempted. I mean, God took him there. And there are other times where I take myself there and you know, I don't know what to do, but I would, I would rather be preventative and say, Lord, I'm gonna go take this time. I'm gonna carve out in my schedule time to listen rather than talk, because we are a society that are talkers. And you, not you know, in, in fact, we, ha- we just recently received a newsletter from a friend who is a, a missionary doctor, and he's a plastic surgeon, and deals with a really poor, he's been in Cameroon and, and he's getting ready to go the to, poorest of to the poor. Nepal. And has dealt with lepers. And his latest letter to us was about pain and how we should welcome pain. And that the reason lepers end up losing fingers Lose. and toes is because they don't really feel pain and so they end up doing things that 
like if they burn themselves, they're not aware of it. And, you know, the, if they get an infection or a cut, it just goes unattended because they're not feeling the pain. And that the pain is a good thing. The pain gets our attention. The pain reveals to us, hey, there's something going on that you need to deal with. And it's just like Ed and Alan are saying about the wilderness. We need to welcome the pain. We need to welcome, welcome the wilderness. Well, it's That'll revealing. Preach, <laughs> it's revealing to us. It is uh, shining the light on something that we need to focus on. Well, it definitely purifies. I mean, pain and fire purify. And if there's anything that we need, I mean, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? And uh, we need to be purified and learn to trust. The truth is you can't avoid pain, but you can avoid joy. <laughs> and and <laughs> I so think true. that's, you know, that is just really th- those kind of two choices before this day. I lay before you two Life choices. And, and that's, uh, you know, I believe that, you know, let's force joy is better than genuine depression. Okay, so um, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, you've got a, cho- oh, you've got a choice there or whatever. But... I mean, the whole issue of today's world is whose voice are we going to listen to? Mm. Are we going to listen to medias? Mm. Are we going to listen to whose voice? Whose voice did the Holy Spirit listen to mm. when God said, let there be light? Whose voice did Eve listen to? Mm. Right. Whose wow. voice did Adam and Eve listen so to? You know, whose voice are we listening to? And that's the relearning, kind of retuning in, you know, mm-hmm. turning it onto a different channel. <laughs> Right. The God channel, okay, right. rather than the Bod channel. Yeah, so we make that point in the that relearning section that in order to trust God, you have to know God. And in order to know him, you need to spend time with him. And so that kind of leads to the fifth step, which is to reestablish. You need to make new patterns in your life where you are spending time, you're making the time to be with God and to be in his word, to put off the old man, to put on Christ, to let yourself be filled with the Holy Spirit and to let yourself soak in his word, to hear his word. But in order to do that, you have to change the patterns of your life and make a conscious choice that you're going to do things differently than you were doing them before. I don't think you can do that on your own always. I think you can do it to an extent, but I think at times when you're learning a new thing, I mean, the coach is there. I mean, it's been proven. Uh, there have been ice skaters, there have been track athletes that have said, I don't want to coach. And, and that year they did worse because they did not have somebody on the outside helping them be accountable to what they said they wanted to be or do. And to me, uh, what I tell people, especially like, uh, I know, Dustin, you work with uh, sexual addiction and that sort of thing. You know, they need a friend, they need the counselor, and they need a group. And those three factors give enough power, uh, and certainly the Word of God and the Spirit of God, but the practical everydayness, hey, did you do what you said you were going to do? Oh, no. Let me pray with you. Let me, you know, we need the human factor. I mean, we are, we're just filled with robots and, and computers that are doing things for us. But God made us human beings, not human doings. And we need to be to the praise of his glory through, again, that accountability that is, if the 
person isn't calling me, I mean, if I'm not calling the person and saying, hey, I need prayer, the other person loves me enough that they care and they are praying and they say, how are you doing? That has been like a turning point for many people in my counseling is they're going, this guy sees about 10 or 15 people a week and he's calling me to ask me, how am I doing? That means something to them. And if we have a hard time making choices, we need to get somebody that will help us make the choices we want to make. It's, it's really too. you know, everybody has a measure of grace. But if you join up with somebody else, you move from a measure of grace to grace without measure. That's great. Or the ministry of, of Christ. You're just stronger, you know. And I liked what Tom Landry said, the old Dallas Cowboy coach. He says, my job is to get men to do what they don't want to do in order to achieve something they've always wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. That's good. And you see, the yeah. smallest, you know, the, whole, the smallest step in the right direction always creates joy. So yeah, I have another one, Alan, for you on that. You'll like this one. <laughs> okay. If you see a turtle on a fence, it's for sure he had help to get there. <laughs> <laughs> so right. when I see somebody, you know, that's rising up way up mm-hmm. there, you know, I know that he had help. The, the real heroes are the ones that are his support staff and mm-hmm. support group, his team that, that got him there. Teamwork makes the dream work. And so, yeah, we really encourage that, that uh, person to help because it takes, you know, if you're in a pit – and it's too deep to crawl out yourself. It takes a person to drop down a rope and pull you, pull you back up. That's and that's right. that's sometimes what we we need. That you know, in in America, just to use a business example for our business people out there. But the, I, you know, in America, eighty percent of the businesses are single sole proprietorships. Ten mm. percent are partnerships, <laughs> and ten percent are corporations. However, ten percent of the business in America called corporations produce 90% of the profits and sales. Wow. And so that's that corporateness that we're talking about, moving from measure of grace to grace without measure mm. and having that team. That's why the singles ministry was so powerful because we could put them into a community, put these mainline, these people into a community where there was other people going through the same thing that they were. Mm. They were getting help from the pulpit, from Pastor Pat, Shaughnessy, mm. I'll say I'll use Pat. And they were getting help from me in the singles ministry, and they were getting help especially from the other people around them. And frankly, it was the other people around them who were solid and giving them good advice. Mm. They didn't always get good advice. But, you know, that's what really helped. That was a key factor. It Mm. wasn't the only factor, but a key factor in bringing them up, getting them back to where they once belong. You guys write in the book, our lives will rise to the level of that in which we place our trust. Mm. Can you say more on that? What does that mean? Our lives will rise to the level of that in which we place our trust. It requires trust is the rope that connects connects us with the object of our trust. Okay. Okay. So trust is a rope, all right, if I can say it that way. And it connects us with whatever we're putting our faith in, okay? Now, we were designed by God to be connected to God. That makes, will how high does God rise? Pretty high, okay? And if we're in that situation, we're going to go up, we're, we're going up with God. However, we put, you know, uh, our trust in our bank account. I call it rejoice in my bank account. Oh, he's in again. You know, or rejoice in my Harley. If I put my trust in my Harley, if I put my trust in my real estate, if I put my trust in my bone beauty or others' beauty, or whatever. You're attached to that person. Whatever you're trusting in, you're attached to, and you only go as high. To a finite thing. Yeah, to a finite thing. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. only go as high 
as they go. And so many times we trust ourselves, that, mm. which is really circular. You know, that's, that's just a circle, mm-hmm. you know, the unbroken circle. So remember, trust is what connects you to others, to the object of your trust. And so watch out what you connect yourself to. And many, you see this many in marriages, people get married, and all of a sudden, they, you know, they meet in church. Let's say I'll use a church example, and then I'll use a non-church example. But they meet in church, and I'm trusting the Lord, and they're doing really well in their walk. And then they find somebody, and they get married, and they start going downhill really quick because what they've done is they actually shifted. They've made this person their big, God. Big shift in the trust. Yeah. Mm. See, and that person is a wonderful servant, terrible master. You know, don't get me wrong. Uh, your bank account, wonderful servant, terrible master. Harley Dave, wonderful servant, terrible master. But what happens is we make the servant the master, and then we invert, and then it becomes an idol, and then God just, you know, does what he does with idols. And so idol worship is just idol worship is the way I see you say it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But, but that's, you know, does that, uh, forgive me for the little clever No, I love there, that. But, great but the whole thing is, wow, you see, uh, we will only rise to the level of that in which we place our trust. Um, many people are placing their trust in politicians mm-hmm. or a philosophy, humanism socialism what I mean you know all these isms and you know you're only going to rise that you're going to rise and fall as that thing rises and falls and remember its end is not good mm. because basically what you've done is you've just deified you know uh, what's Psalm 115 not to us not to us but to thy name give glory God right they're good they're idols they have mouths but they can't talk they have eyes but they can't see they have hands but they can't feel they have ears but they can't hear they have feet but they can't walk and the one who worships them will what become like them right that's what I mean by our lives will and, rise. and what so happens yeah what happens is we start out the right way we start out worshiping the God that is the creator, but then we start worshiping the creation. Or uh, even in ministry, there are times where a pastor who loves ministry, but he loves ministry so much, he loves the people so much. I think of Bob Pierce, who was the president of World Vision a long time ago, and he was so intoxicated by the need to minister to the needy around the world that he would spend uh, weeks and months away from his family to the point where he alienated his family and and his daughter ended up committing suicide and at the end of his life on his deathbed there was a reconciliation that went on with his family but there's a need for us to remember <laughs> again remember who's the God that we're worshiping and are we worshiping the thing that he's given us the souls of people coming to know the Lord, there's nothing wrong with that. But when my life is so out of balance, I'm not doing the priorities God's given me, then I've gone too far. We used to have a diagram in this counseling ministry that I was a part of where you draw a circle, you have a dot in the middle of the circle, and you have a line that goes right to the border of the circle. And at that line, you know, eating's great, but gluttony, that's going too far. Money is fine, but going too far, that's the love of money. So it's like we have the bounds that God has given us. It's like a fish that stays in the bounds of water is fine. He wants his freedom. He jumps out. He ends up sucking air. And he <laughs> I wasn't created for this. And we were created to be in the circle of God's love. And if we start lighting our own fire, if we start worshiping that which he's given us rather than thanking him, 
that he's the giver of life. He's the giver of the joy that I have through ministry or through these wonderful experiences that I'm having. But to him be the glory. I just think that's really important. Yeah, I, I, that's a great – he's given us all things richly to enjoy, enjoy yeah. but not to worship. Yes. And what God blesses as a supplement, he curses as a substitute. Mm. And sometimes we just make that sub- – that's the whole thing with this whole trust thing, what the enemy does to you. Is he gets you to put your trust in something, and then, then what he does is he cuts you off from God mm. and, tie, and puts your – gives you a new rope to whatever it is that wow. not God. Well, and I think it was C.S. Lewis that talked about the screw tape letters where this guy is he has wormwood talking about, you know, sending out his henchmen, the his demons around the world to help men get all involved in their own stuff. And he goes, Great, they're involved in all that conflict. They're involved with unforgiveness. They're great. I can move on to the next one. You know, we get wrapped up in ourself instead of wrapped up in and, God. And, and in Paulie's relearning and and you know, all of these things, renewing and, and all those wonderful R's, I'd rather trust God because I don't like the alternative. Mm-hmm. And you see, if I think it through, mm-hmm. if I'll just follow it through, but that requires that you not be run by emotions or by somebody else's voice or by yeah. emotional mm-hmm. clutter or by hate or unforgiveness or anger or you know, anger not transformed is anger transferred, we, you know, and, and so this is very important, and that's where you have to do the relearning there. Because frankly, I mean, if nothing else, if God can't convince any other way, at least I'm smart enough to think, you know what, I just don't like the alternative of this. Mm. Well, and Paul said at the end of his life in Romans 7, you know, the, I want to do the thing that's right, but the very thing I want to do, I find myself not doing who will set me free from this law of sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He has set me free from this law of sin and death. And then he goes in 8.1 and he says, in Romans 8.1, he says, Is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? And so in Christ is the key. And I think the Spirit will correct us and convict us of the truth but we have to be filled with his spirit, filled with his word, and listening to him again so we can learn how to trust what is trustworthy rather than trusting what is going to lead to death. There, you know, sin seems pleasurable for the moment, and it is, but its way leads to death, and we want life. We most certainly do want life, don't we? And trusting God and trusting others is a huge part of that life. Alan's words remind me of Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands his decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you and the land that you're about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long good life in the land that you're crossing, the Jordan to occupy. Isn't it amazing how Alan, Polly, and Ed 
They, they basically have been paraphrasing this Deuteronomy passage, what they call dragon eggs. And, and dragon eggs are simply just a metaphor for all the idols in our life that prevent us from a relationship, a, a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next week, we'll continue our conversation about these dragon eggs, these idols, these small G gods in our lives. In fact, Polly shares a story of how she slayed her own personal dragon egg. To learn more about Dr. Ed Delph, you can visit nationstrategy.com. And to learn more about Alan and Polly Heller, visit walkandtalk.org. And lastly, you'll be able to sign up for one of Alan's upcoming trust webinars. On behalf of Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is A Prayer for Revival, based on Psalm 85, verses 1 through 13. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We need for God to revive and awaken His people again so that when we even think or consider of revival, our hearts are excited to think about what God might do. And because of that, catch this, God carried that nation, exile in Babylon, a horrific situation where they were separated from their home. They were there for 70 years for their sins, being reminded daily of the fact they were not home because of their sin. And even though later Haggai tells us that they have returned, they recognize that the former glory of God's presence amongst them has never seemed to return. It seems like they've never been able to get back to where they were with God. They were tired. And the great promises of God that they would be a great people living in peace with Him taunted them. They thought maybe we will never again actually fulfill this thing that God has promised, that we will actually be able to be a blessing again to others and to the nations as God has promised us. And the issues of life that hit them caused them to cry out to God. And maybe you feel that way this morning. The issues of life have hit you in a way that as you are waiting on God, you are weary and you feel as though your heart is drifting from God. And you need God himself to help you draw near to him. You need God to revive you this morning and to give you the fresh hope that you long for. Church, don't we long for God to awaken us? Well, that's exactly what the sons of Korah are asking for and for this congregation and this congregational song in Psalm 85. And here's our big idea. If you're writing notes, it's a great place to, to write something down. 
Now, verses 1 to 3, they're going to set the context for our psalm. And you'll notice here that all of the verbs are in the past. They're remembering the way that God responded in the past. And you'll also notice that there's a little line there. It's Psalm 85. And I'm going to look at those first three verses. Here's what the word of the Lord says. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all of your wrath. And you turned from your hot anger. Now, the sons of Korah, who wrote about 12-ish psalms, knew something about God restoring his people in the past. Now, Korah was a Levite who was with Moses, and he tried to lead a rebellion against Moses along with his sons and others. And as a result, God ended up killing Korah and many of his sons in number 16. Now, just think about that judgment and the name Korah and the fact that it would have been synonymous with the people who had rebelled against God. And then what we find is It's something that is really startling and encouraging if you're a rebel like me. We find in David, nearly 400 years later, that he commissioned the sons of Korah to sing praises to God day and night before the most holy place. I mean, talk about an upturn, right? But now we are leading the songs of the people of God in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I long for a kind of turn like that. And when Israel returned from exile in Babylon, these men kept the gates of the house of the Lord. Just think about this. A family bearing the name of a notorious rebel, whom David restored to sing of the glory of God, is leading this congregation and pleading with God for revival and restoration. I believe these are men who knew something about restoration. And they begin by reveling in remembering God forgiving their past iniquities. That's just a fancy word for sin guilt. He forgave it. Israel, also referred to sometimes as Jacob, Jacob was Israel, turned to idolatry as a nation. They turned to all kinds of egregious sins for which they were guilty. And it wasn't just idolatry, it was cult prostitution and even child sacrifice at times in the past. So when we're talking about guilt, we're not talking about, you know, these little sins. We're talking about egregious sins, big sins that God's people had committed against them. And God sent them into exile in Babylon, outside of the promised land where God dwelt with his people. And his glory departed from them, leaving them in a spiritual ghetto. They were far from the promised land and the promised giver. Uh, They had lost that sense of the glory of God all around them. They were far from God. And that's the sin and the sins that God forgave in the past. And notice that it also says that God forgave them, but also that he covered all their sins. And that God is angry with them, but they remember how God buried the sins of his people in the past with a God-sized shovel, and they want him to pull it out again. So God, we need you to get rid of this thing that has brought us into rebellion against you and your anger upon us. We need you to remove it. We cannot remove it from ourselves. Our own human hands... Our own human efforts cannot remove the impediment that is between us and you. We need you to do something with our sin problem. Now, I think that we learn a couple of things here. First, we need to remember how God has revived and restored his people in the past. This wasn't just good for Israel. This is good for us. We need to be reminded of how God has acted in the past. Here's why this is important. We believe in a God who does not change. 
And because of the way he has acted in the past, and the fact that he does not change, we can trust that he is a God who will act in the same way in the future. He is a God that we can count on. And if we want to know what it is that we are counting on, then we need to rehearse what he has done before and trust that he can do it again. Now, as we look here, what we find is, is that we need to be reminded as well about what God has done. Now, this is not a new thing or an old thing or something that Christians don't need as well. Paul says to the Philippians that it's not trouble for him to tell them the same things, no trouble for him, and it's safe for them. How do we remind ourselves of these things? Well, first is we need to make sure that we are reading our Bibles and taking note of how God revives his people and how fickle our hearts can be. We need to be reminded of that. In fact, one thing that you will notice if you study the history of revival is that any time God has brought a reviving of his people, a spiritual uprising of many people to put faith in Christ and to actually pursue holiness with their whole lives and their full effort, it has always come alongside a revival of a careful, attentive listening to the word of God. If we want to revive our hearts, we need to remember who God is. And if we want to know who God is, we need to look to his word. I think we can also do other things. They're not as good as the word of God and they'll turn us back to the word of God. But I found biographies of past godly men and women and the way that God has been at work have been hugely encouraging in my life. It would awaken us. We can't set up a tent and make that happen. God's got to bring it. And so if we want a God-ordained revival, not something that man's trying to create, we needed God to do it on God's terms and how we can understand what it looks like to see a true awakening of God. When God brings revival, the Holy Spirit enlightens the minds of God's people, not only to see things clearly, but to feel their power in two ways. One is they become aware, first and foremost, of the glory and holiness of God that leads to all reverence and a holy fear. That's one. Holiness of God becomes very big when God's people become awakened. And second, this leads inevitably to a deep and terrible sense of sin and an awful feeling of guilt. Now let me ask you this morning, if we want revival to break out, what do we really need? Do we need our circumstances to change Or do we need our hearts to change? Catch this. Some of us this morning have a lot of head knowledge of God's holiness. We know much of the holiness of God. We could even tell you about people's different understandings of what the word holiness means. And we could trace down the etymological roots of holiness. And we can even debate with the best of them about how we should be holy. But we are yet at the same time far from sensing The power of the holiness of God. Is that you this morning? You need to sense more of the power of the holiness of God rather than merely being able to articulate what it's like. And some don't like to think of God's holiness at all. And maybe that's you this morning and you have made and are making sinful decisions. There's a decision right now that you are making. The time that you spend on the things that are passing away and as you're making that decision, you know in your heart that you don't really sense the reality of a holy God, and we need nothing short of the Holy Spirit to revive us so that we make godly decisions that show evidence of godly life that points to a reviving of the people of God. If we really have a revival breakout amongst us, you know what the number one thing that we're going to be pursuing in all of life is? Not our desires first and foremost, but the glory of God. I wonder what God would let me get by with so I can be happy, like not obeying him. The question would become, in what way, with all the 
opportunities that I have before me, can I most exalt the name of Jesus Christ? Now notice that here, remembering God's character is the God of salvation moves them from past remembrance into a present prayer for revival. And you see that in verses 4 to 7. You can look there with me again. And here in verses 4 to 7, what we see is a prayer for revival that rejoices in the God of their salvation. They want a revival, moves to the end of them rejoicing in the God of salvation. And we see that in Psalm 85, verses 4 to 7. Here's what it says. There he says, will you be angry with us forever? We prolong your anger to all generations. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now here, there's a huge assumption, again, about the character of God. That he has not changed in the past, that he does not change That we can study the way that he's acted in the past and trust that that same God is our God. But notice here that they remember who God was, who God is, and who God will be. And catch this. This psalm is talking about living under the consequences of sin against God. So this is a specific situation that they have envisioned. It's not just a general or saying that if you are suffering today, it is a consequence of your sin. So just a pastoral aside quickly, we know that not all suffering comes directly as a result of your sin. You'll remember in John chapter 9, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, they say, Jesus, whose sin is this man's blindness a result of, his or his parents? And what does Jesus say in response? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In fact, faithfully serving Christ, we know, can actually bring suffering upon you. Sometimes things can get harder whenever you become a Christian. 1 Peter 4.13 says that we even share in Christ's sufferings, which is a daunting thought and yet exhilarating because we know we're being united with Christ in his life and work, all as we seek to obey Christ. But that's not what's in view here with Israel. See, they've owned that they have sinned and need God to restore them. But it's taking so long. Let me just ask you, have you ever felt that about consequences of your sin? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt like that sin seemed so quick and the consequence seems so long? I think that's often the way that sin works out. You know, that's the deception of sin is that you can quickly have eternal joy if you do this thing outside of the will of God. And the reality is, you can quickly do this thing and you're going to be paying for it for a long time. There are consequences to our sin. There's forgiveness with God, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to pay consequences for our sins. And I believe this is what the people of God here in Psalm 85 have found themselves in. And here they're asking some questions. See, they've owned that they've sinned and need God to restore them. But because it's taking so long, they're asking some questions that maybe you've asked yourself even this week, maybe this morning. God be angry with us forever. It feels so long. I feel like God's never going to restore me. Or maybe you're sensing to yourself, my kids have to live with the consequences of my sins and maybe even their kids. And he's got, he gets to the heart of the issue in verse 6 where you notice he asks this, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? See, the congregation senses that God seems to almost be done with them, and they cry out aloud to God, Revive us again, O Lord. 
Awaken us to rejoice afresh in the God of salvation. And then verse 7 says, they desperately need a display of God's steadfast love and salvation from their troubles to help awaken them and their hearts to rejoice in their covenant-keeping God. They need God to work in them so that they will be brought to life to rejoice in God as they have been made to do. God must show himself. And here Israel looks for revival in response to a rescue from human enemies. And likely a sense that God's glory and presence will never return and thrive amongst them. They're fearful of this. So their pursuit of revival all here begins with a confession of sin and of their desperate need of God to come and meet with them. I just want to to say right here that this is one reason that when we gather together on Sundays, we do something that probably seems strange to people that aren't amongst us. And one of those things is that we actually always spend time in our service confessing that we are sinners before a holy God. Now, a lot of churches, like, don't want to talk about sin and the holiness of God. And they definitely don't want to make you feel like you are a sinner or say that you need to confess yourself before the Lord. And yet, what I believe might be happening as we are hiding our sins and refusing to confess before the Lord is actually pushing back God, reviving his people and bringing new life to them. See, we've got to own our sins before we can own God's grace. If we really want to understand the extent of God's love, then we need to understand how far we were for him if we're going to sense a revival. See, we can't own God's glorious mercy if we don't own the ugliness of our sin. In other words, if if you keep your sins and you try to cover them up yourself, right, with your little blankie, you don't get to see the beauty and glory of God covering your sins, burying them deep where no one will ever find them. We weren't made to hide our sins. It's only God that can remove our sins and bury them and make us new and remove that thing that causes wrath between us and God, can actually appease his anger so that he is joyful with us again. Only God can do that. We can't hide it. We can't hide it with more good works, heaping those up on the pile. We can't do it with us saying, well, look, we're better than other people. We can't do it with any of those things because God is the standard. God himself must deal with the problem. We need God to bury our sins. And when we come together, the reason that we regularly sing and pray confessing our sins to God is that this does a number of things that are good for us. The first is that it lets visitors know that they are in exactly the right place amongst other sinners. Now, we're saved by God's grace. That's the way it works. If you are here and you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, I'm here and I need to sort of say incognito with my sin because I don't want them to know that I'm a sinner because then they might not let me come back. That's not the nature of the way that we think of ourselves. See, the Bible tells us we are sinners and we need to confess. We confess when we come to Christ at first and we continue to confess our sins as we live the Christian life. We have all come here to encounter a merciful God week after week. But there's a second thing that we learn through our confession. It's that Trinity Bible Church is, we are reminded, though our identity is wrapped up with Christ, and we are first and foremost Christians identifying with Jesus, we know that we still war with sin. And that even in Christ, we are still utterly dependent on Christ and his spirit every moment. I mean, isn't our confession of sin a confession that we are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to save the people of God because without Him, we would have no hope. That's what confession is claiming. 
It's claiming that we need God, that we will not be made new, that we will not be transformed short of a work of the creator God in us and through us. And confession calls this to remembrance. Also, our confession glorifies our holy, merciful God who seeks to save sinners from sin and death so they can find himself and eternal life. When we confess our sins before God, who would be so bold to come before a holy God and confess their sins and not stand back and hope that he did not strike them down, if not, but for the goodness and mercy of God that they were appealing to? See, every time we confess, we are proclaiming something mighty and wondrous about the character of God. He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is good, who forgives sinners. And by the way, he's not a God who just forgave sinners. He's a God who continues to be in the job of saving sinners to himself. There's a fourth thing that we see here about the nature of why we confess. It's that it promotes confidence in that what God said is true. 1 John 1.9 promises that if we as believers confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just to do that. And not only that, James promises that if we draw near to God, confessing our sin, coming to him on his terms, he will draw near to us. Run to God, he runs to you. Flee the devil and he will flee from you. Now Israel, they understood that their hearts needed to be revived, to rejoice in God being God. I'm wondering this morning if we recognize our need to be revived to delight in God being God. As Augustine famously said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. We need you to revive our hearts so that we can obey you as we should. Lord, you call us to rejoice in your salvation. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would revive us to rejoice in the God of our salvation with an earnest, palpable joy. That's what God calls us to. There's a third thing we see here, though. Verses 8 to 10, we see a third thing. That's that revival and obedience go hand in hand. Revival and obedience go hand in hand. Now here you you see something happen in the flow of the psalm. So far it's been the congregation. And now what we find is there's this singular voice that begins to speak, almost hushing everyone else so that this person, maybe a prophet, can hear a word from the Lord. And here's what happens. Notice here he doesn't say that you are forgiven, so sin, and that's not a big deal. Go on and do what you want. No, instead he says this in verse 8. He says, let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them turn not back to folly. See, they feel like God is so far away, but here the prophet listens for a word from God. And the prophet either hears or he anticipates hearing God speak peace or shalom to his people. To these, he calls them saints, which signals that God has buried their sins. They are his holy ones. That's what saints means. They're his holy ones, and he has turned his wrath away. Now, you might think to yourself, well, like, peace, why is that such a big deal? Things just got quiet and they were loud. Like, what kind of peace are we talking about here? Shalom is is really actually an all-encompassing, joyful, well-being that actually goes into every sphere of life. That's what the people of God longed for. Peace on every level of life. See, this envisions a peace with God that works down into every nook and cranny of their lives. 
We have this psalmist, and he stumbles as he sees peace. Because here's what happens. Peace is broken out, but the wicked are those who are enjoying it. And he's confused. He says, why is it that we have peace, but the wicked are enjoying it? God is righteous. This just doesn't make sense. And then you'll find that in Psalm 81.12 that God speaks to his people directly. But they refuse to listen to the voice of God. But take note that here in Psalm 85.9, there is at least one man in Israel who listened to the voice of Yahweh, of the covenant God of Israel. And God speaks here through him to his saints. When it's talking about saints, it's not also talking about like super Catholic Christians who performed a miracle and get saint status like Mother Teresa. That's not what we're talking about. When the Bible talks about saints, it's actually better uh, translated holy ones. They are holy because their God is holy and God makes them holy as his people. So here, this speaks of those seeking to owe Obey God, who have been claimed by God. And notice that he foresees God turning back to his people and says, but let them not turn back to folly. Of course, the way of wisdom is living in the fear of the Lord or faithful reverence and obedience to God. And folly, it describes living independently of God. So it's this kind of living that provokes God's displeasure. It means going rogue spiritually. Like, I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm not going to look into God's word and seek to be obedient to him. I'm not going to treat Jesus as ultimate king. My desires or someone else will be my ultimate rule maker. In other words, here, what they are saying is, don't let us turn back to folly. Don't turn away from us. God, please don't repent of turning to us. Don't turn back from that. And let us not turn back from turning to you. Don't turn away from the God who just turned back to us. And as they wait, as they are waiting in verse 9, he confidently cries out this as they wait for God's movement. He says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now don't miss this. Those who fear God are near God. Now, God being near, you might not feel it palpably or experientially. But what he says here is, is, look, it might feel like God is far away to us. But we know that God is near because we are those who fear God and God draws near to those who fear him. That's the reality. And maybe that's you today. You just need to be reminded of that. It feels like God is really far away. You fear him, you're seeking him, you're seeking to be faithful, not saying you're perfect, but it feels like God is very far away. And here I would say, God is closer than you realize. And it's not your experience that indicates whether or not God is near to you. It's God's promise in his word that tells you he is very close. And these psalmists believe that those who fear God that that means that they have a reverence for God, seek to obey his voice, God is close to them. Salvation is coming. And this remnant of people, those of Israel who actually put their faith in God and fear him, they say that glory will dwell in our land. I think this statement is powerful for a couple of reasons. First, God will dwell in our land. is actually a word that comes from the same root for, for Shekinah. It's a root that actually means the glory of God and the glory of his presence so much that it actually became a name of God. God's glory, where he dwells with his people. And so here, the people envision that he would dwell with them. In Psalm 78, 61, they remember how God's glory departed from the land. But here, the psalmist says that God's coming home and his saints are coming with him. 
We're going to get back. We're going to be restored. God is going to restore all that we have lost. And second, you'll notice that in verse 1, speaking to God, they just called it your land, speaking of God's land. And now they say it's our land. And so they broke into song, this land is our land. But there was this idea that, wow, this really is God's home and our home together forever. God has restored us. See, they will experience what every heart longs for. And and do not be in any way deceived. This is what your heart longs for. You long for shalom in the home. You want peace in the most intimate levels of your life, the most intimate rooms of your life. You want peace with God. You want peace with your family. You want peace with your enemies. You want peace. You want a joyful existence that revels in God's creation, unhindered and unfettered. And yet you know that that thing that you long for so much gets pressed back on on every level. And so the peace that you want so much is the peace that is so elusive. And here, these Israelites, who have not experienced peace their whole lives, really, see a peace that is coming that is going to be glorious. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds good for Israel. But what we know is, is that Israel actually never experienced the fullness of this kind of peace that they longed for. Never got better than the glory days of David and Solomon. In fact, things got more difficult, and it was a history of God's people turning to him and then turning away and then turning again, and of difficulty and suffering on a national level, the people of God suffering. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, what does this mean for us, these promises of peace that is to come, this desire for revival and restoration, what does that mean for me? Well, catch this, in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, tells us that in Christ, we have received peace with God. And we are saints, we are holy ones of God if we have put our faith in Christ and the fact that he has died and been raised again for us. Not because of a miracle that you have done, that's not why you have your saint status, but because of a miracle done to you and for you in Jesus Christ. Because of that, you have a new status. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10 says this, you once or you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, catch this, a holy nation, you. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Gentile Christians in this church or this area, this region. He says, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies, may rejoice of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people. He says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, We are positionally holy by virtue of our relationship to God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are also called to live holy lives that image Jesus Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel. So being Christ-like means being more holy. And that is the life, the steps that we've been called to walk in. Now don't miss this. Revival will be marked in part by an increase in living a holy life. And at times you felt like the Bible and the church got in the way. You felt like you would really prefer God just to do something exciting rather than you be faithful and committed and doing the hard things of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian as you as Christian exiles wait on the new heavens and the new earth. And what we find in the history of revival is that it is often these mighty movements, not just excited pep rallies, but mighty movements of God where God does something It's always come about by God's people obeying God's word, praying to him, crying out to him, confessing their sins, 
looking to the word and trusting that God was holy, running from their sins and running to praise God and to be faithful and sharing Christ with others. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what comes first, holiness or the revival, revival or the holiness? Does God do something or we do something or do we do something and then God does something? The chicken or is it the egg? See, our holiness or God's reviving his people, which is it that actually creates this movement? I would give two answers. So I would say theologically, obviously, God causes revival. It's something that God does. It's something that God does by his power and his might through his spirit to the glory of his name in a way that is beyond anything that human hands, human minds, human gifting can be attributed. But if you're asking me experientially, what comes first? Well, I would say both. See, God delights in drawing near near to those who draw near to God. And so as we see a revival happening, often it'll seem like, oh, it was spontaneous. But we don't see the many years of faithful prayer of like in Wales in 1850, where three men were just asking and begging for revival, and then it broke out in ways that they could not expect. And yet it was because there were faithful, godly men who were asking and beseeching God on behalf of those around them. See, the Holy Spirit enlivens us towards God. God delights in drawing us near to him. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then along with this, this is part of drawing near to God, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will bring life where there is death. It's a devilish lie that the call to obedience is legalism. See, if that's true, then Jesus is a legalist because he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John is too, because in 2, 4 to 5, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him or her. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. See, I believe if a revival were to break out, we wouldn't be squishy on obedience of who we are dating or thinking about dating. We wouldn't be squishy about whether or not we should watch this or that movie. We wouldn't be squishy about whether or not we are sharing Christ. See, we do not need a a program to evangelize the lost. If God revives our hearts, you won't be able to shut us up. Think about that. A festival of sin, year after year, a man comes and preaches the word of God with authority, and they say, we will never do this again. Friends, that's not the normal thing that we should expect when someone preaches. That's when God shows up and does something unique, the kind of thing that we long for. God, revive us. One day, God will restore us, though. He will restore us. I believe what we have in verses 10 to 13 is a vision of the future meeting the present. We find that God will revive them until he restores them. Look at verses 10 to 13. This is what he says. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet... Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and makes his footsteps away. Now as you read this, it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of the nature of what it means for God to be present amongst his people. And he has personified a number of the attributes of God, the attributes that define And characterize his kingdom and the coming Messiah who would be over his kingdom. So you'll notice that steadfast love or that covenant love is going to meet with faithfulness. That's not been the status 
so far. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness, you'll notice that it is springing up from the ground and righteousness is looking down from the sky. So as we see these attributes, they're all of God and what you see is the fullness of God surrounding the people of God in the place of God. God is coming and he is surrounding them with all that he is. They ask for revival and restoration, which means God with his people in peace. And here they find an image of unparalleled glory, the personification of the attributes of God joining in making much of God and his people. They are at one with God in peace. Commentator Derek Kidner again says, the prevailing concept here is that of concord. That's the image you see, concord. It is a vast, unspoilt, and rich with life image of harmony. That's what we find here. There is no friction with God. There is no sin or pushback. People are living obediently with God in joy. See, this harmony is the climax of this text. It is a hopeful future. God's people hope in God again. God has helped revive them so that they hope in God and they put the hope of their future in God's hands. Now, as commentators read this, they get super confused in all kinds of ways and they confuse me. You know, some will say that this is going to happen in the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns, but no one can deny that this will be the experience of God's people in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns and restores all things. Only then will we truly see the fullness of this kind of harmony. See, God will bring revivals amongst his people until he restores all things, which climaxes in us living in peace with God forever and all of his fullness. Don't you long for that day? Man, life can be so burdensome. Boy, I can't wait for that day when God returns, his Christ, his son comes, and he dwells with us forever in a land that is utterly peaceful, full of shalom, that we are peace with God and have joyful relationship with one another unhindered. What a day that's going to be. So let us pray, asking that God would bring about revival in our day, many times over, until that great day when he restores all things to the shalom and the home that we long for. Let's pray together. Sovereign God, O matchless King, the saints adore, the angels sing and fall before the throne of grace. To you belongs the highest praise. These sufferings, this passing time.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.